WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and thanks for tuning in tonight. I'm Abby Newton and you're listening to Impact Exposure. It saddens me to say that tonight is my last live show of the semester. It has been an absolute pleasure being part of your Tuesday evening. However, we will still have our show and we'll have a special host this summer and I look forward to returning in the fall. Today, we will be talking to a Michigan State University geography professor about climate change. Also, the Associated Students of Michigan State University's president, Evan Martinek, chatted about the organization's recent turmoil with the university. Later, MSU alum and author will speak to us about her book on empowering women. Lastly, we're expecting a zombie invasion on exposure, so stay tuned. In the spring of 2005, an environmental photographer, James Baylog, went to Greenland, Iceland, and the glaciers in Alaska for a National Geographic assignment to capture images to tell the story of our changing climate. Now, Chasing Ice is a documentary about this man's mission to gather evidence on our changing planet. Chasing Ice documentary will be shown in Wells Hall this Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. However, before the showing, we wanted to talk to an expert to understand this climate change. Professor and Chair of the Geography Department, Dr. Alan Arbogast, was kind enough to come into the studio on Tuesday. However, we had a little bit of technical difficulties and were not able to record his interview. He said in this documentary, the photographer, James Baylog, used 25 cameras for three years around these three geographic areas. He shot a picture every hour as long as it was daylight. It was neat because the pictures really captured the memory of the landscape. And it was a memory because all that landscape disappeared. The glaciers disappeared. But it was all captured on film. So as mentioned before, you can see Chasing Ice documentary this Thursday at 6.30 p.m. in Wells Hall. Also, this professor will be there and he can answer any of your questions. The director of the film, Jeff Orlowski, will be coming and offer a special presentation. Again, that is Wells Hall, room 117B at 7 o'clock and the doors open at 6.30. On Thursday, April 18th, the Associated Students of Michigan State University, MSU Student Government, struck down a bill that would have turned the group into an MSU department and transfer funds to the university financial system. Impact's Gabriela Saldivia talked to ASMSU President Evan Martinick about the controversy. Can you just tell us what's going on currently with ASMSU? So basically, um, in the last few years, the university decided that ASMSU, which is uh, the Associated Students of Michigan State University, um, and it's the student government at Michigan State, they decided that we would become a unit or department of the university and be subject to um, pretty much all the rules, regulations from the MSU Manual of Business Procedures. We'd also have to give up our independent legal counsel um, and, and these kinds of things. And so, um, so more recently it's come to a head, and they gave us ultimatums and threatened to um, pull our, our ASMSU tax funding if we didn't comply with their um, demands. And so basically the General Assembly, which is the voting body of ASMSU last week, voted down a bill uh, to move all the money 
basically taking a stand and telling the university that um, they weren't going to um, sort of succumb to the threats. So what's the university's reasoning behind wanting this move? Um, the university says it's part of um, a larger goal to a more closely align student government groups with the university. Um, they also cite uh, issues from audits in the past um, that that had flags in them, um, and we sort of countered that by um, sort of telling people that the reason there were flags in those audits were because of a university employee that ASMSU didn't have control over, um, that the university sort of imposed on us back before 2010. Um, we have hired our own university employees since then, or I'm sorry, our own non-university employees since then, and we haven't had flags on our audits. Um, but they also sort of uh, are just trying to, um, I think, have take more control over uh, the student government's finances and what they can and cannot do. So why does ASMSU oppose this? What, what are the reasons um, that you guys are voting these down? The General Assembly had serious concerns about what the university would be able to do once all of the um, monies were moved onto campus. So if ASMSU ever came up with an issue that the university wasn't happy about, essentially they could freeze or threaten to freeze all of our money um, unless we uh, sort of complied with what they were asking us to do or unless we stopped, um, you know, or sort of shedding, uh, sharing a certain perspective that the university didn't agree with. Yeah, that's a big one. Another problem is that there are no university rules or regulations that state that um, student groups uh, can't have monies off campus. Um, and basically, ASMSU currently is in no violation of any policy that exists at MSU. So what the university is essentially doing is it's unilaterally creating new policies and sort of demanding that the students comply and adjust to these new policies. And the students, all, all the students are saying at ASMSU are, we're happy to meet you halfway, but we need to have a conversation, we need to have a dialogue, and threats are not going to be the way um, that we shape the future of student governance at MSU. So do you know if this is particular to ASMSU or is this happening to other student groups on campus as well that have their funds off campus and they want them internal? ASMSU is being singled out um, in the short term, but it's also true that COGS, the Council of Graduate Students, have also received a memo from the university officials um, with, uh, with deadlines and um, criteria that they must meet um, you know, in a certain time frame or else uh, with threats as well. Um, but uh, our uh, ASMSU states were, as far as, uh, as far as what we were required to do in, this, in a certain amount of time, were a lot uh, shorter time frame and also um, were, was a little bit more explicit about what would happen if ASMSU didn't comply. Um, part of the reason we suspect is because ASMSU has a lot more assets off campus. Um, we have an investment account. We have maintained uh, an investment portfolio for the past 10 years. Um, and uh, the university is adamant that those funds be moved immediately. Do you know why um, it's all coming to fruition now? a good question. Uh, I think probably the best answer is that the university has been wanting to do this for quite some time, and, um, you know, it's, it's been a few years, and, and they think they finally just made the decision that this wasn't going to go on any longer for them, that, that, the, univer that the student governments would no longer 
um, you know, exist in the way that they used to exist and that they were really going to make a move on this issue. How has the conversation between ASMSU and the university been going? Like I said, it's been an ongoing conversation. It's really been a conversation that's taken um, shape over the last uh, few years. Um, I think more recently, um, the university has, I guess, been less willing to talk about details and guarantees and more adamant that funds be transferred immediately. That's really become the focus of the dialogue. And um, I think ASMSU has maintained that no matter under any circumstances, if the funds are going to be moved, that the student government will need certain assurances, um, which is basically the argument that it has, ASMSU has taken over the, over the couple of past couple of years, and that we're going to need certain assurances that the university won't be able to uh, take unilateral control over the student government. Um, and so that's really the, uh, the, the dialogue that we're trying to uh, bring to the university. And frankly, uh, as you can see, it's uh, not really making a lot of headway for us. So, Yeah, so now what are your plans? What, what's the outlook for the future? So um, we expect that our um, tax revenues will be either frozen or withheld. Um, even though, again, there isn't actually a policy on the university books that um, necessarily warrants or condones that kind of action. Um, but in any case, um, ASMSU uh, can can sort of live off of its uh, its off-campus funds for uh, about a period of uh, nine months. Mm-hmm. So we'll try to continue to operate as fully functionally as uh, we have, um, but uh, at the same time, we're going to try to spread awareness about our issue and try to um, garner student and public support for, um, you know, the kind of student government that we feel um, ASMSU should be um, and really tell the university that uh, basically threatening student governing groups to get what they want is is not an acceptable tactic. Have you heard um, reactions from students on campus about this, what's happening? So as of today, we actually have a petition going online, and we've had uh, a few, several hundred uh, uh, students and other folks sign on to the petition to support ASMSU's um, sort of uh, uh, situation here. Um, and that's actually, uh, it's, it's only about a day old, and we've already gotten a lot of support. And also, if you look at some of the comments on the state news, um, we've actually had overwhelming support from a lot of the folks that chose to comment on some of our articles. So that's uh, pretty exciting. And then, in addition, the General Assembly's no vote um, was actually um, 32 no's, one yes to abstention. So an overwhelming, um, you know, almost uh, consensus from that uh, from that group as well. So we feel those are obviously really important. Mm-hmm. So this is a little bit of a digression, but you can probably comment on this from ASMSU's standpoint. Uh, recently, Denise Maybank, the interim vice president of student affairs, was recommended by the faculty senate to be appointed um, the president and waive the search process. What do you think about this, and what do you think this could mean for students? Would this limit so students' voice? That's a really excellent question, and actually I was at that meeting. Um, it's an interesting way. Uh, it, I guess it played out in a very interesting way. Um, the uh, steering committee of academic governance met actually one hour before the faculty senate meeting um, in a special meeting that was called less than a week before. Um, and the only issue on that meeting uh, as an issue uh, to bring up was the to add a motion to Faculty Senate's agenda. 
to waive the Taylor II process, which is the typical process for certain um, MSU administrators, a search process that would involve um, sort of a national hiring process and a um, committee comprised of faculty, students, and administrators to choose, um, basically choose uh, who the next administrator would be. So this motion was to waive that process. Um, all of the four students at the committee um, before the faculty senate meeting were in opposition of this motion, as well as a small number of faculty, um, but it did pass, and so the motion was added to faculty senate. Um, and then at faculty senate, there was an, uh, a pretty interesting dialogue that went on um, amongst the faculty and administrators, and um, I, st I stood up uh, as the president of ASMSU and, and sort of commented that we felt it was really important that students would be included, um, at least in the, at very least in the process that would be prescribed for hiring the new um, VP for Student Affairs and Services, if not at least consulted um, in that decision-making process. Um, Cog said something to the similar effect, and um, and, and anyway, uh, the faculty senate uh, ended up taking a vote, um, and it was very close. I believe it was 14 to 18, so only a couple votes would have swung that uh, that motion the other way. Um, mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, in academic governance, typically you only see votes unanimous one way or the other. Um, so so uh, anyway, that was interesting. Another interesting piece of that faculty senate meeting was on a number of occasions, um, some of the folks running the meeting, um, administrators and faculty, tried to um, sort of silence the student voice by claiming that uh, that students didn't have voice in the faculty senate, which actually isn't true if you look at the academic governance bylaws. The ASMSU president and the COGS president have ex officio seats on that uh, committee, which means they have speaking rights. Um, just not voting rights. Um, so we thought that was uh, kind of an interesting twist as well. Um, and, and overall, we were really disappointed with the way the process went down. Um, we felt like students uh, should be an integral um, part of choosing and deciding what that position is going to look like and, and who will be selected for that position. And the way it uh, was sort of carried out, students were um, completely uh, glazed over and um, uh, ignored. So, interesting stuff. Well, um, thank you, Evan. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, just that if folks want to learn more about what's going on, um, we we direct them to the ASMSU Facebook, ASMSU Twitter at ASMSU, and our website ASMSU.msu.edu, and they can and folks can find a lot of information about uh, what's going on over here and how they can support or give their feedback because um, we're always interested in hearing from, um, uh, you know, what our, our uh, constituents think. Well, thank you to yeah. Evan Martinek for joining us tonight. Um, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. Now, after this interview, um, some of our reporters decided that we wanted to know how much students did know about the organization, so we went into the streets. What do you think of ASMSU? I think it, it's a good opportunity for students to be involved with the community if that's what they're specifically looking for. It's really helpful. They're a good club to be involved with, and they help us help us out a lot. I I don't know. I heard they help people when they get in legal trouble. I don't know anything about ASMSU. No, same, same. <laughs> Shum, I know I get some flyers and things from them. They host a lot of events, but I don't know. Oh, I feel bad. I should know this. Their services. 
can't make a video offhand. They have a lot of, like, well, they, you know who they are, essentially, and their names on a lot of things, like, they support a lot of things. I don't know. Never looked into it. ASMSU is a group of students who act as a governing body for um, Michigan State students. And earlier this week, Impact Sonia Treeweiler spoke with Martinek about the organization, its recent initiatives, and a little bit about the organization itself. In 2009, ASMSU created the Readership Program. Um, it's a program um, sort of administered by USA Today, but it provides papers like the Detroit Free Press, uh, the USA Today, and the New York Times mm -hmm. um, to students across campus. And what they did was they assessed an additional fee as part of the ASMSU tax. I think it's one one twenty five per student per semester. A dollar twenty-five, um, and uh, basically, um, it sort of evolved into a program where there were twenty-two locations across campus, and you know papers were provided every day, every school day, basically of the fall and spring academic semesters. Um, as far as you know, people have noticed that there are less papers on campus in the last um, week or so, and basically. Um, consumption this year was up, which is sort of consistent with the presidential election year. Um, more papers were um, sort of consumed by the students, if you will. Um, and the cost of the program is based on consumption. So what happens is it's not a finite amount of papers, but it's actually as many papers as the students demand, and then it's measured against, um, you know, how many papers are left when the distribution company picks them up, right? So since consumption was so high this year, and then the number of dollars is fixed. Um, we had to draw back our distribution mm -hmm. in order to make sure that we didn't uh, sort of go in the red for the program. So what, have have students talked to you about it at all, or have you heard general student reactions to it? Yeah, some students are, you know, I, I, I've read some of the, the different uh, articles about it or, or comments <laughs> or whatever, and some students uh, have sort of said, you know, I understand, you know, they're not completely gone and it's not too big of a deal that I have to walk, uh, you know, to this other hall to get my paper in the morning or whatever. Um, we also, what we tried to do was we kept the locations that were the, um, in the highest demand. So hopefully that since uh, those were the most popular ones, um, those ones would stay there um, and it would impact hopefully less people. Um, but anyway, and then the other comments I thought, were, this one was pretty funny, it was, it was a graduate student who said that he was really disappointed that he was no longer able to get his paper and now he had to walk, you know, wherever, to, and it was really inconvenient for him and, and we kind of laughed because we thought, well, um, you know, you're a graduate student, you don't pay for the paper, so sorry that your free ride got a little bit more difficult for you. Um, <laughs> And, and that's sort of another piece of it, what we've done in, in this sort of drawing back of distribution was we tried to limit the locations to just the swipe bin, so only undergraduate students would have access. Um, we cut down on the open air bins, is what we call them, so that means less faculty staff or graduate students or folks who aren't paying the tax will not have okay. access to it. No, I know that you guys do provide a lot of services. And A new program called the Safe Ride Program, which you may have heard about. Um, which is basically something that exists in a lot of our other Big Ten schools and things that have been uh, basically programs pioneered by the student governments at those schools as well, which would provide um, rides for students. Um, we'll, we're starting off at night. Um, obviously, when there's more traffic on the streets, Thursday, Friday, Saturday kind of thing, um, to give 
students a safe ride either from campus to off or off to back on, um, you know, to the dorm or wherever because, you know, you can't always count on the night owl or, uh, you know, or, or the the taxi services are expensive and so it's something that we were looking into it looks like um, we will have a pilot program this summer and then depending on how that goes you know we'll make adjustments and and then next uh, fall we'll sort of um, see if we can handle the whole uh, the whole student <laughs> population being back and then go from there um, so that's been one big thing um, let's see other projects you just had the carnival? We did. Oh, as far as events go, yeah. yeah. So we had, um, I have a lot of them up here. So we had <laughs> Macklemore in March, which was just hugely successful. And then we had the um, sort of candidate carnival is what we called it. Um, I mean, it was a lot of factors were really stacked against us there as far as getting the paper. Like, um, as far as the carnival went, it was a lot of um, legal and risk management things where it got tied up in the university system. Um, people... I, I don't know what people necessarily think, but we've actually been planning that for over three months. Um, but we got really hung up in a lot of the red tape of the university, which was unfortunate. And then on top of that, we had abysmal weather for the entire elections week. I don't know if people noticed that as well, but it was overcast, rainy, cloudy, and snowy. Um, there wasn't actually a day of sun. So that was tough for us because, you know, a lot of our election sort of grassroots outreach is just literally into the streets and getting people on the streets to come and vote in. There weren't a lot of people out that week. Yeah, so, I, I did see that. I noticed that. Yeah, so that was disappointing. Uh, actually, a fun <laughs> example of that is last year we, uh, for the first time, did uh, promotional material with the sunglasses and they had ASMSU on the side and they were really popular and people were wearing sunglasses all elections week <laughs> and like whatever and so we ordered a bunch more sunglasses this year and nobody wanted or needed them <laughs> all week so we're going to save those for yeah. another you know another event or something like that but <laughs> it was just a, an eye-opening you know no pun intended uh, right. uh, <laughs> experience for us <laughs> Have you ever considered doing a marathon? How about the Ironman? How about a 160-mile boat race? Well, that is exactly what a group of students from the Outdoors Club at Michigan State attempted last month. Impact's Will Meineke has the story. A shelter system, a bathing suit, pogies, and rope. Not your typical packing list, but all recommended items for those who participated in this year's Campus to Coast race. The 160-mile trip was hosted by the MSU Outdoors Club over the weekend of April 5th, and participants paddled all the way from the Red Cedar in Wanch Park, Okemos, to the coast of Lake Michigan. The 60-hour paddle wasn't without potential hazards, including bad weather forecasts and choppy water. But Clint Adams, a Geographic Information Systems major who participated in both the trip and its organization, explained why the race could be worthwhile. Teams will be paddling through the night, and it's all, uh, you know, it's an adventure race that teams are paddling at their own pace and choosing when they sleep and everything, and it's going to be something that uh, everyone really remembers for the rest of their life because it's, it's so hard. In addition to creating lasting memories, the Outdoors Club made a goal out of bringing awareness and positive change to the Red Cedar River. 
Adams explained that there are benefits to just exposing students to some of the environmental issues that the river faces. Um, we do have a lot of kids um, from MSU that they don't have that much paddling experience. They haven't been on the Grand River. And I think it'll help just seeing, um, going down the Grand River, seeing all the trash and debris and how like dirty it is. It'll, it'll inspire them to want to change and do something about the river, and it'll hopefully bring more awareness to it. The race also provided the opportunity to make physical improvements to the Red Cedar. We improved the river a bit um, by adding portage signs um, along some of the route at uh, various dams that we were allowed to, uh, which is a pretty cool, cool thing to sort of improve the environment that we're going to be um, holding the race on. If the potential environmental benefits aren't enough to lure paddlers for next year's race, Adams mentioned one other possible incentive. What we organized as a finisher's prize, if you finish, um, you get a pint glass saying that you are a campus-to-coast finisher, uh, which is a pretty cool thing, and our uh, slogan for the race is paddle for the pint. For Impact News, I'm Will Meineke. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89FM. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and we have come across a book that talks about sexual assault in relationships, and it empowers women. Finding Burnt Ranch is a novel written by Michigan State University alum Judy Kalinowski. Although she lives in California today, we have her on the phone to talk about this book and its importance. Hello, Judy. Hi. How are you today? How's the weather in California? Oh, my. It's just beautiful here. It couldn't be uh, better. Oh, I'm looking outside, and it's raining, so we're really jealous. (laughs) Well, first off, congratulations on your first publication. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, so tell me about Finding Burnt Ranch. Well, um, it's set in the uh, northern California mountains, and there is the four characters that are involved in it. The two main ones are women. Uh, One is named Emma, and she is in her 40s. And she uh, is kind of a hermit, and so she found this place that's rather remote in the mountains and built her house and makes a living by making high-end furniture. And um, she gets behind schedule, so she, with a deadline in front of her, she has to hire another person to help her. And she hires a young girl named Chloe, who's a high school senior, and they work together and are developing a wonderful relationship. And this is where the empowerment starts to come in, because... Uh, Emma is a pretty autonomous woman, and she's uh, decided to just be by herself. But she sees that Chloe is involved with a bad boy, with a bad boyfriend. And so she wants to alert her to the dangers of that and, in mentoring her, be able to empower her somewhat and have more self-respect. Where did you get the inspiration for this book? Well, I, um, maybe possibly through some of my own experiences. I think as writers, we start off with something that's happened with us, and then we start asking questions, you know, what if this happened, and what if that happened, and we start building on it from there. So a lot of it is taken from uh, my own experiences. Um, I do have a home in Burnt Ranch that I built, and I am kind of a hermit. Uh, maybe, maybe Chloe was uh, the daughter I never had. Mm-hmm. There you go. And why did you choose to focus on empowering women and sexual assault in a book? Well, I think that it's a really important dynamic. I think that we have... Um, Even though relationships with other people is uh, probably one of the most important relationships we have, 
I think that we also have to address having a relationship with ourselves and to uh, feel what we can do with our life and the power that we have within us to make it as good for ourselves as we can. Okay, and how do you do that? You know, how do you really find that power within? Well, I think that a lot of it comes from experience, and if and when you have, uh, especially when trouble starts between a male and female relationship in terms of sexual assault, that then it's a good idea to be open to what other people can say to you because they might have a more objective view. And when you're in the thick of it, I think that one of the dysfunctions in uh, an abusive relationship is the fact that it, it never gets better, that it's pretty much a uh, progressive spiral downward. Um, but I think that one of the biggest dangers that girls and women have is that they think that the power of love and that with their own intent, that they can fix it. And I question that. I think that the, one of the best things you can do is uh, walk away or run very fast. <laughs> and um, if anything, you know, what's the number one thing that you hope readers, male or female, take away from this book? Well, I think that uh, to question, to always be curious about whether you're getting uh, and giving yourself the best that you can in life and to do it through, um, I find exposure to nature to be an incredible source. Uh, a lot of people who have ties with cities and stuff feel that their hometown is the most important thing uh, in terms of defining themselves, as has happened in Boston over the past week. But sometimes I think that nature can equip us with some of the things that can still the heart and can uh, give our souls a place to rest and then to maybe do some internal focusing on uh, what what the best can be for us. And when did you discover uh, the power of nature per se? Uh, how did I discover the what? <laughs> the power of nature, I'm sorry. Uh, oh wow, well that's, <laughs> that's been with me for a really long time <laughs> and, and especially with where I live right now, my relationships with animals and, and watching uh, the fog that rises from the river are probably more powerful to me right now than anything else because they find it so soothing. Um, and I think that that can be an addition to anybody's life. Mm -hmm. uh, so then did you find this power at Michigan State University while you were here as well? Well, maybe when I was walking <laughs> down the river. <laughs> I was more of a city girl when I lived in Michigan. It, that the, the part I grew up in Detroit, and the, the power of nature has kind of been a uh, slow and powerful movement as I get older. Mm -hmm. So it, um, I definitely would encourage anybody to, to search that out. Okay. Um, and lastly, do you have any books that you are hoping to publish in the future or other um, ideas that you have? Well, I am looking forward to another book. I've written about maybe a third of it in a rough draft form, and I hope to continue to pursue um, Chloe, uh, who is one of the characters, to see where her, where her development will go. She does finally um, listen a little bit to her mentor, M, and there uh, becomes uh, there, there's a relationship between the two of them that might be uh, considered kind of a mother-daughter relationship. Mm -hmm. And with Chloe, Chloe's also very interested in getting her father involved with Emma, so there's a love story involved in that, too. I think it would be possible to continue their stories and then add other people as well. Okay, and um, also, we, you said that you'd like to read a passage from your book, so we'd love to hear it if you have the chance. Yeah. Can I do that now? Yep, go ahead. This is okay, uh, Finding well, this Burnt Ranch. Um, the part uh, that I chose was when Emma is confronting Chloe with um, the bad boyfriend. Okay. And so Emma says, okay, this isn't hard. Donnie's hot. 
When I was 17, I was fascinated with bad. Badness was exciting, daring. Donnie has that written all over him. He's sullen. He's anti. He's belligerent. And he notices you. Imagine that. Sweet, innocent, non-rebellious Chloe catches the eye of the bad boy. He grabs you around the waist forcefully. He takes your breath away. You want him. But it's the fact that he wants you that's so powerful. He wants you. Intoxicating. But, of course, a story like that has never played out over the history of humanity, M says sarcastically. Anyway, it's all good if that's where it stays. What's not good is if he's an emotional tyrant. What's not good is if he's a bully. What's not good is if he punishes you. She waited several beats. Sound familiar? So that's where their argument starts about uh, Chloe's defense in that she loves him and so she can fix him and the older woman saying, it ain't going to (laughs) work. And why'd you choose that passage? Why do you feel it's important? Well, I think, uh, I guess maybe it was just like an intro to what the meat Mm -hmm. of the plot and the conflict will be. Okay. Well, great. Well, Judy, thank you so much for joining us all the way from California. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy that I had this chance. Thanks Mm -hmm. for giving it to me. Oh, anytime. Anything first, fellow Spartan. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Have a nice night. Bye-bye. Bye. It is that time of year again. Birds chirping, water flowing, and sun shining, and wedding bells ringing. Wait, what? Apparently, it's a big time of year for wedding engagements. It is called Ring by Spring. Impact's Carmen Scruggs has the story. While many college students are getting ready to take final exams this spring, others may be getting ready to tie the knot. Although only 18% of undergraduates reported being married, according to a 2008 survey by the National Center for Education Statistics, some students are already hearing wedding bells. MSU juniors Kara Hanley and Zach Redderath got engaged in December of 2012 and are planning their wedding in August of 2014. Hanley and Redderath said they've received mixed feelings from others about marrying young, but their commitment to each other and shared goals made getting engaged in college ideal for them. We both kind of felt like we had felt so strongly about each other, and we've been together for five years, you know, but we didn't really feel like other people realized how serious we were. This is just another way to show, like, we're really in this, like, we're committed. For some couples that get engaged while still in school, like Kara and Zach, preparing earlier for matrimony and eventually a family is more favorable. We want a family, and we don't want to wait until we're like 30-something to start trying. You know, we both know what we want, where we want to go, so we're taking early steps to get there. However, not all significant others foresee marriage while in college or even right after. I think it totally depends on the couple. If they want to do it, I'm all for it. I think it's amazing. My friend is actually getting married this summer, and she's my age, so... That's even earlier, and I'm still super excited for it. But deciding when to marry may also depend on where you live. The National Center for Education Statistics indicates that the median age for marriage is 28, but the average age varies from state to state. Although the average age of marriage in Michigan is 28 for women and 31 for men, according to 2011 Michigan Occurrence Marriage Files, other states have lower ages. Southern states like Arkansas and Oklahoma have larger numbers of thrice-married people and marry younger at age 24 for women and 26 for men, according to Pew Research on Social and Demographic 
demographic trends. These statistics may reflect the fact that some Southern schools have developed a reputation for participating in Ring by Spring. Gracie Gilbert, who attends Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, said she knows of this trend. It's kind of this phenomenon that people in the South think that it's crucial that they get married either their junior year or senior year, like the second semester, so ring by spring. Gracie experienced this trend firsthand when her ex-boyfriend, who attends a Christian school in Birmingham, Alabama, called Samford University, brought up the idea of ring by spring. I know from personal experience that it is real because my um, ex decided that he thought it was important to talk about that and kind of freaked me out, I'm not going to lie, just because I wasn't really aware of it. But it is a very real thing. Gracie, who originally grew up in Pennsylvania, says she can see how culture plays a part in choosing when to marry. Growing up in the North, you don't see this whole spring by spring, getting married in college, cool thing. And living in the South and going to school in the South, I see a lot more, but I definitely feel like there is a huge difference. So whether you go to school in Michigan or down South, deciding when to marry ultimately is up to what each person wants in a relationship. With your Impact News, I'm Carmen Scrux. Zombies, zombies, and more zombies. They have invaded our televisions, our movie screens, and now the classroom. You heard me right. There's an online class offered at Michigan State University called Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. Now, what is with the zombie culture? Well, social media and marketing manager Lindsay Gluff and course instructor Glenn Stutsky are in the studio now to answer that question. Welcome, guys. Well, thank, thank you. you. How are you doing today? <laughs> Very glad to be here, and it looks like a pretty safe place. <laughs> <laughs> We're okay here. So tell me about this new course. Well, this course, the core idea about it is about what, how do people behave in catastrophic events. And instead of having a catastrophic event like a massive you know, hurricane or earthquake, we decided that we would use zombies because they're just so much more interesting. <laughs> How did the idea come about? Well, the idea came about, oddly enough, from the United States federal government, which totally surprised me, mm -hmm. because as I was looking for good information about how do you prepare for a disaster or catastrophe, I went to the Center for Disease Control, to their site. They have an prep emergency preparation site. And lo and behold, what did I see staring back at me from the computer screen? A zombie. <laughs> I thought, you got to be kidding me. The federal government is like, cool? No way. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you survive a zombie apocalypse, from your personal and expert opinion? <laughs> well, you know, you hear a lot, and I've been on a lot of different shows where I've been with preppers and different people like that who really have down kind of the mechanics, you know, mm -hmm. how do you purify your water? How do you, what weapons should you have, you know, in any kind of apocalyptic situation? 
But I'll tell you one thing that often gets left out, and this is my own personal belief, is that the most valuable asset that you can take in to an apocalyptic situation or a catastrophe is actually relationships. Hmm. That's probably the most valuable thing that you can bring in. Okay. What about you? What do you think? Oh, <laughs> putting the social marketer on the spot. <laughs> uh, kind of along the same lines, just humanity and, you know, uh, respect for your fellow human beings until they turn into zombies, I guess. So <laughs> there you go. So we like them until they get to the zombie point. Then you kind of cut your end. Uh, huh? <laughs> you you got to do what you got to do. I so. understand. <laughs> um, now, for instance, what was the student response? Because this is an online class. So it's a little different. How have the students responded to the online version? Well, it is a little bit different, and that was one of the things we were curious. We were wondering how could we create, in an online environment, a certain sense of chaos and catastrophe in that. And our first time through, you know, which was last summer, it went pretty well. The students are randomly broken down into small groups, survival groups of mm-hmm. like three or four people. Because one of the things, Abby, about a catastrophe is... It happens when it happens, and you're with whoever you are. I mean, you might like to be with your boyfriend or your mom and your dad, but, you know, if the catastrophe hits now, guess what? It's you and me and Lindsay and whoever those folks are behind that thing. That's our survival group, and you are wherever you, you know, you are wherever you are. So in the online environment, we we have a simulated catastrophic event, it begins, as I'll tell you, it doesn't begin the first day of class, but it begins and it happens, you know, when it happens. And all of a sudden the students are thrown into it. It's deliberately chaotic. You don't get all the information right away. We just try to create a certain sense of that mm-hmm. online. Wow. And what have you learned while you've been creating this class? Uh, one of the things I've learned, oddly enough, is that catastrophic events have always been a part of Earth's history. We've had biological events like the Spanish flu in the 1918, 1919, which almost killed half the population of Europe. We've had massive volcanoes that have taken thousands of people's lives. And um, as we started researching for what are the uh, what would turn people into zombies, we looked not to Earth, but we looked to the solar system. And um, a solar flare happens, which is actually a real thing. So one of the things I would say is one of the things I've learned is that eventually the Earth will have an actual apocalyptic type event. And it doesn't mean that it's the end of everything, but it's the end of everything as we know it. Mm -hmm. It's the end of an era. And it could be a meteorite striking the earth it could be a massive solar flare but somewhere in the future maybe not in our lifetime maybe tomorrow you know it could happen so what one of the things i learned abby was catastrophes aren't just something in the past there's something that are going to be a part of our present and Mm -hmm. in our future someday and Lindsay, have uh you know your involvement with this course made you paranoid at all no, I was already like that to begin with, so <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, and how about you, Glenn? Well, um, I'm not worried so much about actual zombies, but when you think about kind of zombies in the popular culture and that, one of the things that they do is they devour people. And one of the things I've learned, Abby, is that after a catastrophic event, 
eventually we adapt to whatever that is. You know, it's as bad as it is. Then the real thing you have to start worrying about is not the, the whatever caused it. You have to start worrying about people. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, we can become like zombies in terms of devouring one another. I mean, we may not actually eat people's flesh, but we get to a place where we want to survive more than, you know, the, the other people who are there. And we may do things that we may never thought we would have done, including actually, you know, killing other human beings. Ooh, gave me the shivers a little bit. <laughs> I'm making facial expressions here, you know, good thing. <laughs> Only audio. Um, now, you mentioned that the pop culture of these zombies. It seems like, as I mentioned earlier, the zombies have almost invaded our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it on TV, you see it in the movies, you see it in the classroom now. Why is that? Why the obsession with zombies recently? That is a really good question because this uh, summer there's going to be a major, major movie. Zombies are really going mainstream. World War Z is going to be coming out, Mm -hmm. I think, sometime in June or July. So uh, it is becoming a real part of our culture. I think part of it is that these are are kind of scary times that we live in. You know, everything hasn't gone well with our economy. There's wars and threats of wars and terrorism and things. And I think sometimes some of that is folded up and captured in something like a zombie in that, you know. And, uh, and, and part of it, too, is I think there's, there's some of us that we'd like to be scared. We'd like to run. <laughs> um, I remember when my grandson was little and I would pick him up at a daycare or center or preschool and the kids would be out on the playground, and they would want me to chase them around. And they always wanted me to be a zombie. <laughs> and they'd be running and screaming and yelling. Of course, I never grabbed any of them or anything. But <laughs> sometimes we just like that, that kind of, um, you know, that danger. And, and um, I don't know. Mm. Lindsay, do you have anything to add? Uh, you, you said you were paranoid to begin with. <laughs> have, you always, have you always been paranoid of these zombies? Uh, or other things, maybe. I was <laughs> <laughs> more of a joke, but um, no, I've definitely seen a, a, a you know a definite surge in zombies. Like looking over just movies the last couple of years, we have Zombie Lambs now. Zombie Lambs, a TV show. Mm-hmm. We have Walking Dead. You know, Shaun of the Dead. There's parodies on zombies now, you know, zomb- like scary do- zombie movies. I mean, it's becoming. Very applicable. Mm-hmm. Zombie walks where a bunch of people yeah. get together dressed as zombies. It's like a kind of a communal feeling now. Mm-hmm. So Michael Jackson might have started it with Thriller. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was a big thing. Mm-hmm. I think there's something, too, about the idea of um, finding deep bonds with other people. And in a survival scenario, that happens. You know, like if, if a catastrophic event were to really happen... You know, the three of us and the folks, you know, behind the booth, we would become close in a way that maybe we're not even close with our families. I mean, there's something, it's almost like being in a war situation. And as, uh, you know, as difficult as that is, there is something really satisfying or rewarding, having those deep human bonds where it's like, I will die for you, and I know you will die for me. And together, we're going to try to survive. Mm-hmm. And do you think the zombie culture and even that survival aspect and belief is here to stay? I think, yeah, I think that it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much a part. And lastly, how can students, and this is open to people who aren't Michigan State University affiliated, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. The first time we had the course, 
we had a couple of, uh, of uh, non-students, just members of the general public from Canada, from um, Vancouver, that were a part of the course. We had two students from mainland China, actually, that were a part. And uh, we're looking to increase that, you know, this summer. Mm -hmm. So you do not have to be an MSU student. You could even be from another university and a student and be a guest student. Mm -hmm. How can students sign up? Uh, actually, we just launched last week in conjunction with uh, the award we, went, we won last Tuesday, which was uh, Best Fully Online Course um, for the 2012 year here um, at MSU, uh, the AT&T Award. And uh, we launched it with zombie.msu.edu to go in conjunction with that. And has all information um, on prospective students, where we've popped up in the media. We've even mentioned on Conan, which <laughs> was cool. <laughs> um, so, yeah, lots of information there. Okay. Uh, lots of cool videos and links all to all right. of our social media. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And we look forward to more zombies invading campus. <laughs> thank you, That's Judy. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Lindsay. Judy was our last guest. <laughs> Lindsay and Glenn from the Zombie Apocalypse. Thank you. Thank and you. that concludes our show this evening. Again, uh, thank you for a wonderful semester. We wish all the students best of luck on finals and a marvelous su summer. Um, it's been an honor bringing you the East Lansing and Lansing News. Also, also, special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, and our assistant producer, Will Meineke. They've made all this possible throughout the semester. Also, I'd like to thank and recognize our soon-to-be graduated station manager, Aaron Young. His hard work and dedication will certainly be missed. Lastly, thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, who continues to successfully operate our campus radio station. Now next week, we will have a special capstone show with features and a discussion about social media and college relationships. While keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next fall, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 88.9 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.